0: This week, Todd Fisher on his incredible life with two iconic women, his mother, Debbie Reynolds, and sister Carrie Fisher.
1: Carrie became uh, a teenager. Uh, She started to believe there was uh, some sort of invisible competition, uh, that she was in this race with my mother.
0: On their Hollywood life, tumultuous relationships, and the huge pain of losing them only 24 hours apart, this is Pop Culture Confidential. Hey guys, welcome back. This is Christina Yerling Biro. So once in a while, a book comes along that engulfs me completely. Todd Fisher's book, My Girls, is one of those. As a kid, I loved Hollywood movies, musicals, and memoirs. I guess not much has changed, right? Singing in the Rain was one of my all-time favorites. I knew every Debbie Reynolds move. And then there was Princess Leia, of course. It turned out they were mother and daughter and my head probably exploded. As I grew a little bit older, Carrie Fisher's writing, like Postcards from the Edge and Wishful Drinking, were hugely influential to me and so razor sharp. They're still some of my favorite books today. Now, Todd Fisher has written a really, really personal book about a really, really unique family. He's also part of a great documentary about his family, HBO's Bright Lights and he talked to me about his life with these incredible women. This family's life was completely in the public eye. Todd's mother, Debbie Reynolds, was only 19 when she did Singing in the Rain. She became one of Hollywood's biggest stars and lived through one of Hollywood's most scandalous divorces when Todd and Carrie's father, Eddie Fisher, left her for Liz Taylor. She also survived two more failed marriages, both husbands leaving her in financial ruin but she always powered through and made the best life she could for her children. Incredible work ethic, she performed in film and stage her whole life. And she threw the best parties. Todd and Carrie grew up among Hollywood royalty on Greenway Drive in Beverly Hills. Todd also talks to me about his incredible relationship with his sister Carrie, her meteoric rise to stardom with Star Wars, her struggles with bipolar disorder and drug abuse, and their incredible bond. Oh, and you will hear some noises once in a while in the background. That's Carrie's parrot. Todd will explain it more. Todd Fisher talked to me from Las Vegas, where he has a production company, and he runs much of Debbie Reynolds' estate and her incredible memorabilia collection. Mr. Todd Fisher, welcome to the show and thank you so much for your very personal and beautiful book about these two incredible women.
1: Well, I, I you know it was something I had to do. Uh, you, you know, when you lose two amazing people like that and there's so many things that are en, unsaid and um, and you also see, how the press gets things a little twisted around here and there, right. you know, right. you, you, you know, it really, I was the last man standing to really kind of get things straight and make sure that uh, they were treated right.
0: Um I'd like to get started um by asking you to go back and take us to say a typical weekend at 813 Greenway drive in those early years. What was that like?
1: So, you know, it was the only normal that I knew, but if you looked at it from almost any other perspective, you know, it certainly looked pretty outlandish. Uh we I used to, I now refer to it as the uh the you know the Dowden Abbey of Beverly Hills. Uh, <laughs> we literally had footmen, you know, and there were like eight people taking care of each person at the house. It was just like a, a ridiculous amount of uh of staff. Uh and you know my mother Really loved to entertain, and uh, every week was a party. On on Wednesdays and on the weekends, we had movies in our screening room. And this was long before you had Turner Classic Movies. We had Debbie Classic Movies. (laughs) And it was our version of film school. My mother, literally every Wednesday, we had to watch her choice of what she deemed to be an important movie. And, oh, there's sound effects. That's Archie. That's Archie the
0: parrot doing Star Wars sounds. He was Carrie's parrot.
1: That's right. So for he, I've had Archie about 25 years before I had him know he was Carrie's parrot, and he learned certain sound effects that he feels compelled to do whenever I'm on the phone. So you'll hear <laughs> from him occasionally. And what's kind of cool about it is a parrot is an African gray parrot. He keeps so many people alive, including Carrie. Uh, you know, there he goes That's again. That's touching. He, he, has, he, has, he, he actually, you know, when he does speak, he speaks in your actual voice. Oh, wow. So, it's really quite chilling at times you know when you hear voices from people you know have moved on uh but but he's kind of a special character in our family and uh he's so special he has his own trust fund because he's going to outlive everybody. Okay. You know Winston Churchill's uh, parrot still alive he, he rambles on about what? the Nazis. What? Yeah, so you know <laughs> so I always thought that was kind of amusing but it made me realize these parrots you know, are truly family members and uh, need to be cared after long term. This- but anyway, back yes, to please. back to Greenway, you know, she would throw these very uh, elaborate parties and, and many of the Hollywood luminaries from the MGM studios would come. And uh, when we were very young, Carrie and I, we didn't really understand who these people were exactly. So, here you had all these amazing celebrities, you know, Jimmy Stewart and Betty Davis and Katherine Hepburn or whoever. And, and, you know, you'd see them and you know you'd seen them before, but it was sort of the normal. It wasn't like, oh, wow, there's, you know, Betty Davis. And I tell a story in my book about Betty Davis um, <laughs> looking for a restroom during one of these big parties. And, and she couldn't find one. So she ended up going back into my room, which was just off of the den in the Greenway House. And she was using my bathroom, but she left the door open. And I came into my room and turned the corner and there was Betty Davis sitting on my toilet now i was about seven years old or something like that and i was you know i'm sure i turned beet red i was totally embarrassed and i kind of slipped around the corner and you know she just cut loose with a conversation and kept me there in conversation with her (laughs) while she sat on the toilet and still didn't close the door not not that i'm not judging any of that it was just kind of okay with her and she's talking to me about school and do I have a girlfriend and all this it's like making small talk uh but she was a very beautiful person and a great friend of my mom and a mentor to my mother I mm-hmm. uh,
0: and you also witnessed a um at your home uh, sort of a fight between Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton that seems something out of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf
1: what well, well You know, she was a little intense in those days, and and the two of them were very intense. Uh, Richard Burton was Mm, was a very to say the least. Yeah, but he was very cerebral, and they were combative, and it was it was almost like they didn't like each other, you know. And so they, you know, they had this very uh, intense. They would yell at each other, and you know, handle each other in kind of a rough fashion. Uh, now I didn't, obviously I didn't see them all the time, but you know, when you do that in public, you can pretty much assume <laughs> what, <laughs> what the private stuff must look like. Uh, but yeah, they, uh, we, Carrie and I were watching them have this fight and we, and we were kind of looking at each other like, Ooh, did you see that? Do you see that? And, and then, you know, my mother kind of broke the fight up like, Hey, you know, take it outside. Like you would say in a bar, you know, but they went upstairs into my mom's bedroom and, you know, clearly Uh, what we now know to be makeup sex was going on, and they came back down lovey-dovey, and uh, you know, we didn't know what we were looking at. It it took years for my mom to explain to us what we had seen, (laughs) but you know, it wasn't just that. I mean, you know, because we're now talking about a few isolated things. You know, the house, uh, you know, was an enormous home. It was on the Los Angeles Country Club. Uh, It had three swimming pools, and it was just it was like everybody wanted to be there. All my friends wanted to be there, but not just because it was this big, elaborate house, but because it it really, my mom did create a bit of magic, you know, with the household. Mm-hmm. The way she ran the household, uh, the entertainment was just constantly going on. Uh, and when my mom threw a party, man, just look out because, you know, it was one was going to outdo the next.
0: Yeah, because one of those things is before this time that we were talking about at, at Greenway, you guys became unwilling parts of one of the most public divorces in Hollywood history, um, which must have been just awful for um, Debbie to go through in the right. What do you, you were very, very young, but what do you remember of how it affected you?
1: Well, I don't, I didn't, I was only a few months old when it began, so to speak. Uh, as Carrie puts it, you know uh my as you might know or those of you who don't know I'll explain it briefly but Eddie Fisher my father uh, was best friends with Mike Todd Mike Todd was married to Elizabeth Taylor Elizabeth Taylor's best friends with my mom they go to school together on the lot at MGM they're all best friends it was a great double dating team and when Mike Todd died a month after I was born uh my father rushed to Elizabeth's side and as Carrie says he gradually moved his way from her side to her front. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is what caused all the riff. And eventually he leaves my mother famously uh, for Elizabeth. Now, this is a huge scandal in the United States, uh, beyond the scandal of Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt all that, just, just beyond, beyond. It was, and my mother handled it beautifully and didn't really put any of this on Carrie and I. We just didn't really know. I didn't know anything was happening. Carrie, on the other hand, was a year and a half older and had bonded with my father Far more than me, I had bonded with my mother, and I didn't really know him. Uh, so what I do remember is a very specific thing. I remember Carrie waiting for him endlessly, and him not showing up. And I remember that annoyed me, and even made me mad, even when I had the simplest of feelings when I was in single digits, you know, age-wise. Right. It was very, it was, it that hurt me. That bothered me. Kids uh, I, feel I just,
0: those things.
1: Yeah. And well, you know, and Carrie and I were super tight. You know, I mean, we were, as you, as I tell the story in the book, I was literally brought into this world to be Carrie's companion. My mother did not want Carrie to be an only child. So, uh, you know, yeah, she may have wanted a second child, but the primary thing was there was no way she was going to have an only child and Carrie needed. Uh, she didn't know it was going to be a boy in those days, obviously. So we we rolled the dice there. And, uh, and I was Carrie's companion. And and truthfully, that was how we lived our lives all the way out. Uh, Mm -hmm. We were all best friends. And I think the documentary shows a lot of that. uh, The Bright Lights documentary. And, you know, my involvement in in Carrie's world was really that of a confidant and best friend when we were little there were times when Carrie and I were at odds with each other uh, primarily due to positions I would take in regards to uh, drugs and other things like that but you know n- we always got past it mm-hmm. and we always we always had this deep connection that siblings have whenever the call came in whatever it was wherever it was I was on a plane. I was there because she was Mm -hmm. my sister and, and there was nothing ever going to get in the way of me looking after her and protecting her. It was just part of my DNA. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm fiercely loyal. My mother was fiercely loyal. We learned it from my mother and, uh, God help you, you know, if you got in the middle of all that. <laughs>
0: all right. I have to say, just so the, so the listeners understand how, how loyal your mother is, we were talking about Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton at your home, that that story you were telling in the beginning. This was actually after um, the your father and her marriage. So your mother actually, you know, became friends with her again or, or rekindled that relationship even after that.
1: Well, first of all, I don't think my mother really blamed her uh, and, and uh you know i my mother's is an extraordinary <laughs> forgiving person i mean most people would just think you know you you humiliated me in front of the entire world i'm going to have a hitman come and take you out you know but my mother wasn't like that she was just brought up different and and really did forgive them and just got over it and uh and she loved liz they were great friends the two of them had so much going on uh, between each other they were just very connected. And it was—it would have been a crime, you know, for them not to, to forgive each other uh, for what had happened at different times. And there it was, you know, and, you know, she felt a little vindicated too when Liz dumped uh, Eddie, you know, uh, for Richard <laughs> Burton. I mean, that was a, a pretty scandalous thing in its own right.
0: Is it possible for you to describe your view of the relationship between Carrie and Debbie?
1: Well, in a word, it's complicated. (laughs) Uh, More words, you know what had happened uh, when Carrie was very young. They it was it was very typical mother daughter stuff. When Carrie became a teenager, uh, you had typical, uh, you know, issues between mother daughter. Uh, Carrie, you know, really loved and always wanted to be in show business. She loved it. She loved being on the stage. She loved entertaining. She she just always gravitated towards that. It seemed like. She knew that that's what she wanted to do pretty young. Now, when Debbie started to sort of manage her, you know, she wanted to go the other way. Whatever Debbie said, she wanted to go the other way. Uh, This is not unusual, you know, (laughs) at at the teenage years. Now, we at the time didn't know that she was also starting to show signs of bipolar disorder. We saw mood swings where she would have a – she could be very – almost off the charts uh, uh, on the high swings of moods, and then later be extremely quiet and depressed. And these swings got wider and wider as the years went on. Now, as Carrie became uh, a teenager, uh, she started to believe there was uh, some sort of invisible competition, uh, that she was in this race with my mother. And it was a race that was just in her mind, that, that there was A shadow that was a a thing that she had to be as good as, as funny as, as talented as. And this is like a really impossible race to ever win. And and why would you want to, at any rate? Uh, I never understood that. And we would talk about it sometimes. And I would be like, you know, why are you, you know, angry with mom? And, you know, she would be like, well, she's trying to tell me what to do and control me and these kinds of comments. But what it really got down to is that. It took many years for Carrie to come into her own sense of security in in her talents, and really it was the writing that that set Carrie apart from Debbie, and she relaxed and knew that she was at least better at that by far than my mother, and that is when Carrie started to chill out, and their relationship started to heal, but there was— A lot of years (laughs) of pretty intense stuff going on. Uh, You know, the the movie Postcards from the Edge, of course. uh, One of the best books
0: ever written.
1: Well, it's based loosely on truth. Uh, uh, You know, I was the character. Debbie never came to see Carrie in the hospital because Carrie didn't want anything to do with her. Now, in the movie, you know, there's liberties taken to make the story uh, more entertaining. But in real life, that never occurred. I was there uh and she would only talk to me she would not talk to my mother she was angry mm-hmm. uh she you know she was judging my mother also for you know how she handled the whole divorce with harry carl you know my mother you know had to survive for us and it was truly an a remarkable amazing feat you know to again survive the humiliation of a man you know destroying your life and your children's life and and stepping above it all and saving the family, uh, she did it again, but she, it took a lot out of her and she began to drink in those days. And Carrie hated that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and it, it, not easy for children to, to watch that, you know, but it never stopped my mother from, you know, ever, she never missed a job in her life.
0: I'd like to go back a little bit further, and Carrie, she of course exploded into her own limelight um, when Star Wars came out. How did that impact your family? She was quite young.
1: Well, yeah, it was very unexpected, of course. And, um, you know, she was just beginning her film career. She'd only made one other film, Shampoo with Warren Beatty. And, you know, this is really her second serious thing that she was doing. And,. You know, the reports that were coming back uh, caused my mother to, to kind of be concerned about what was going on in England. And so I was sent over as sort of uh, the family uh, spy just to sort of see what was happening and report back. <laughs> and, and you know, for all, in, for all accounts, it, it, I only went there a couple of times to see what was going on. And I didn't even, I didn't make a, I really was very sort of low key about the whole thing because I didn't want to embarrass her. Uh, at all. And, and you know, it looked like uh, sort of a B-movie. Uh, you know, you didn't see, and speaking there of sound effects, yeah, you didn't see any of the He protests the,
0: the B-movie thing. thing.
1: Yeah, he knows it was good. Well, it didn't have all the sound effects yet, and right. it certainly didn't have the visual effects. And so it was a lot of sort of make show and people standing in front of blue screens and, and so, some impressive sets, don't get me wrong. Uh, But but, you know, the the, there was a lot of talk that that George Lucas was completely crazy, Uh, you know, and the studio certainly thought that. And uh, so what are we supposed to think? But, you know, she wasn't like a huge star. So Carrie and I were sort of saying, well, you know, worst case scenario, I can go back into singing and maybe do a nightclub act if I if this is the end of my movie career. She was it was serious. I mean, you know, there was a possibility that George Lucas was completely crazy, and none of this was gonna ever turn out to be anything more than this really bad uh, space western. And uh, instead, it turned out to be, you know, the most influential film uh, in the science fiction genre. Ironically, Carrie was 19 years old, and was part of a, a, really a, a film that revolutionized the business. Debbie was 19 years old when she made *Singing in the Rain*, which is probably one of the most influential musicals of all time. It, it's very interesting the parallels it in is. their lives.
0: But when when *Star Wars* came out, and she she sort of the coming years received, how was Carrie herself at that level of personal fame? I mean, you always grew up not knowing anything else, but but when she herself became, you know, the focus of all the attention.
1: Well, I think she liked. Uh, I think she liked the stardom. I don't think she. Uh, you know, most people that fall into the entertainment industry don't calculate the loss of privacy. Uh, many complain about it. Now, now, Carrie couldn't uh, plead ignorance because my mother was very, very connected to her fans, and she let Carrie and I know at a very early age that the fans were. Very important to her, and had to be considered our extended family, and therefore deserved a part of her time. And we had to make an allowance for that.
0: Mm, Uh, That's so interesting.
1: Well, uh, the the literal story is: we're walking down the street in Beverly Hills, Carrie and I are maybe six or seven years old. We're going to go to the toy store, and and we've been told we get to pick out one toy each, and we're going to go into the store. And we're 10 steps away from the front door and some fans walk up and want autographs and they want to talk to Debbie and Carrie and I are pulling on her. Let's go into the toy store and she is stopping us, overpowering us. Then she kneels down and pulls us down to her face. eye level, she comes down and she says, no, she says, without these people, I don't have a career these are our extended family i'm going to we will take and make allowances and time for them mm-hmm. and you will be patient and wait and it began right there our education as to where the fans belonged in this in our lives and to the bitter end that is how debbie treated her fans she i never saw her one time even if she was sick i never saw her not listen to the story and sign the autograph and 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 some of the stories were Oh, painfully long, Right. you know, yeah. Debbie, you remember, I, I met you in Detroit in and, and 1967 at the such and such a thing, and you know, of course you don't remember. No.
0: But, but a she huge experience for the fan.
1: Yes, now Carrie did not initially embrace this concept. Mm-hmm. It was a mm-hmm. bit of an annoyance to have this fan base, and, and, and some of the fans are a little more intense than others. Uh, and you even have a little merry band of stalkers, you know, that come along with right. the pretty girl carries in the bikini in the metal by the time we get to, you know, the, you know, return of the Jedi. I mean, you know, Carrie's hugely famous. But by that point, she's um, starting to realize that that um, maybe she has to uh, accommodate this. But truthfully, it took about the, until she was about 40 to really understand that she and Princess Leia were one. Mm hmm. And and that was, they're the same. You know, I, none of us really understood the importance of, of the story to so many people and how that story is, is part of the fabric of, of so many people's lives and how important she was to so many people. And part of that importance really had to do with the character and, and the strength of the Such character. Such a
0: symbol for
1: Yes, and it was an accident. I'm sure George intended parts of that. And I'm sure, George, when he saw Carrie walk into that audition room and he was looking for his princess, in walks the little princess. (laughs) Carrie raised as a princess I mean I told you she's the princess in the Beverly Hills Downton Abbey house she's treated like a princess she has someone who dresses her for crying out loud I mean you know she was a little princess and and you could say that she was spoiled but not exactly but we were spoiled in the sense of privilege Mm -hmm. and and therefore when she walked in the room he saw it immediately and she had that little attitude and and she was she was the queen's daughter i mean the girl was raised by debbie reynolds you know i mean come on <laughs> she's perfect You're gonna have an attitude you yeah. know my mother is no small change i don't know if you ever caught my mom on a talk show but not only is she funny and entertaining wait till you see somebody go up against her i mean amazing uh, you know she she can really hold her own i <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that carrie didn't grab that out of thin air uh you know I I have seen people come up against her, and it's just incredible how gracious and beautifully she'll take somebody down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just incredible. She's
0: whip-smart. Absolutely.
1: And Carrie, of course, got that from her in spades.
0: Mm -hmm. But Carrie, but she was also an incredible fighter. I mean, that's one of a a very... um, poignant thread in your book I mean you mentioned earlier that you realized maybe late that that she was probably bipolar but but when did you realize that she was self-medicating to the degree that she you know you talk about in your book well
1: I, I, I talk in the book about you know us as teenagers smoking some pot and trying different drugs and you know it seemed very harmless and it was the 60s and 70s and you know nobody really thought much of it at the time and, and certainly didn't realize that it was going to have a larger impact on her. You know for me, it was a simple enough thing to say, "That's it, I'm done." For her, there was no "I'm done." She didn't seem to be able to have a switch that said "I've had enough. Or I'm I'm not I'm going to end right there and I can't have any more and this these are signs of course of people that are addicts and uh, I, I saw it um, when we were about 20 years old I'm going to say maybe 19 or 20 and I saw her kind of not knowing when to say no or stopping <laughs> and controlling the situation and I somehow was able to do that and I would talk to her about it and she get a little pissed off that I was trying to micromanage you know her drugs. Or something like that. Now, at the time, we have no concept. You know, she's not taking medication. We have no concept. The words bipolar disorder haven't even been invented yet. Mary, of course, went into therapy because of these mood swings and because of the drugs. And I think the, the first time that it, I got woken up to this is she had an overdose, you know. And uh, this is the story that you see in postcards from the edge. It was actually the first time that, that it ever happened. And I was the one, actually. Uh, that was with her in the hospital, et cetera, and you know, it was a very sobering moment for for her and me, mm-hmm. and my mother, because we came, what we perceived to be the possibility that you could lose her from that. And that's a scary thing when you're a family member, and you realize that your daughter, your sister is, is out of control, and you could lose them at any moment, or their behavior could result in, in damage to themselves or others. And so she goes into rehab and I go with her and I'm the family member in the rehab and everything is great for a few years. And then uh, she starts to slip back.
0: When you and your mom had that realization that you you mentioned that you realized that you could actually lose her, did it change how you were with her, your relationship with her?
1: I never, you know, I never even took a, I mean, I never did anything with her ever again. Mm -hmm.
0: And I mean just Uh, that you would worry about her and, 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 you know.
1: Oh, yeah. There was always a cloud, Mm -hmm. a potential, you know, that was there. We both talked about it, you know. And, you know, the truth is when you look back on all this, you know, the fact that we had her for 60 years is is a bit of a miracle when you consider some of the extreme things that occurred. Also, some of the the people that don't make it that long. I had plenty of friends, you know, and they didn't make it. I got – Carrie and I both had a lot of friends that that didn't get that far into the game, so I feel fortunate that we had her. I I, I really do. At the same time, I can tell you, I feel really shortchanged. I, I really, she was at the top of her game. Uh, she was in just remarkable form. I mean, her her her, I, she was just peaking as a talent. And 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 so when I walked through her empty home, and she's not with us, and I I think to myself. Wow. It's terrible. It's a, it's a huge loss. It's a waste. It's just not right. And, and it's, my mother knew, she always used to say, I don't want to outlive my children.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: She said that for a long time. And and, Yeah. yeah. And, and many people of course say, these are not remarkable words these are the feelings of everybody and and how many families are dealing with similar things to what I'm describing not maybe in public the way we did but there it is and and so you you know you the loss hits you and they're and they're both gone and what uh, your family
0: did was really open up this to um, other families who are going through this and other people. And I mean, for me, carries books in the beginning and what you talked about. I mean, though it, it was just that openness that you guys had, not just at the end, but always.
1: Well, that's and Carrie was the first person to call herself out and she was the first person to be upfront about it. And she was the first person to take the shame out of it and to say to people, it's not something you need to hide from. It's something you need to face head on and overcome. And, and as she said, as Meryl Streep said, you know, you turn your pain into art. I mean, wow. I mean, the quotes, the, the, the stuff that she created in the face of this adversity is so remarkable that, it, you know, it was miraculous. And, and those are such beautiful examples, both of them in their own way, you know. But in some ways, Carrie was a little bit more remarkable because she did all that she did While having a mental disability, that is amazing. My mother and I never, you know, we we don't know. You don't walk in those shoes. I don't know what that's like. I mean, I, I know what it's like as much as you can from an observation perspective, but nobody knows unless you live there.
0: I have to say, because now that you mention, I've read a lot of biographies, I've talked to a lot of famous people and relatives of famous people, and I don't know how to quite put this, but you yourself, you seem so grateful, um, you have such perspective, and you came out very level-headed and unscathed from this, um, um, traveling with your RV and talking beautifully about your life. Why why do you think that is?
1: (laughs) Well... I mean, I think my mother was that way. My mother and I were pretty tight and, and I consider myself to be a lot like my mother. I mean, not in that, you know, I'm not no one saying that I, you know, you know what I'm talking about as a person. As, and I, there were there were attributes that my mother had that were just something to behold and something to aspire to. And she lived a great life of charity and, and she lived a, a life of of giving and she shared with other people. She was so kind and, and so giving. And the, the the works that she did on this earth were truly remarkable. And and so to live in that, you know, you talk about living in the shadow. I mean, live in the shadow of that and observe that and learn from it. And and so I've I've tried to to hold to her standards. They're high standards, mm-hmm. believe me. They're were they were very high. And, but and your sister,
0: on... your sister did write in one of her books. Um, I don't know if I'm quoting it correctly, but you were the hogger of all the sanity available in the ah. freak family. <laughs> yeah, you're <laughs> About right. You.
1: That is the right quote. And yeah, well, she in her first book she said, "My my brother moves through life in smooth, easy paces." <laughs> now it's interesting that that's what she observes. And the truth is, I was kind of the designated driver for the family, you know, someone had to hold the keys. You know, at at times we were coming off the rails in every which direction, so somebody had to drive.
0: Um, And the thing about Debbie is, I mean, Not only I mean, she survived these three marriages, I mean, men who stole money from her and infidelities and she worked her ass off. Sorry for my expression. She had to sell your beautiful house and rebuild your lives again and again. Um, but the one thing, um, tell me if I'm right, of, 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 in, that I seems to get from your book is that the stroke she had in, in 2015, where she actually soon couldn't perform again, that that was really, um, to not be able to perform was what was really devastating for her.
1: Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, I, I used to, you know, as much as it was incredible that she came back fully from the stroke, I mean, it was remarkable. Uh, I, you know, I still knew that there was an element of her life missing. That was something that she had had always. And it was like taking away her light. Uh, and, and, and I, I didn't, I, I, she couldn't, she was just not who we all knew her to be. You know, there was a remarkable piece of her missing. As Carrie says in bright lights, she falls from a greater height. And, and that's such a great description.
0: The fact that they that they died within 24 hours of each other, is, I mean, that was overwhelming for us, you know, fans on the outside who, who had followed them and, and loved their things, but I cannot begin to fathom how overwhelming it must have been, or must be still for you and to write about it. um, How, your mother, you write that your mother had a premonition actually. Can you t- tell us she about actually- that? Yeah,
1: she my mother had dreams all the time. And and when she would come to us, both Carrie and I, and she would have dreams about things, you know, (laughs) at a certain point, you'd be like, oh, my God, now what is it going to be? Because this, you know, she could talk about something. And most of the time it came to pass. Sometimes it was relatively minor. Now, this particular time, she says that she had a dream. She really needed Carrie to get home right away because she was very concerned because she had a dream that Carrie's plane went down and she didn't survive. And I said to my mom, look, you know she she'll be home soon and she's coming you know on a, a giant you know bear plane. I mean, these planes just don't go down. I mean it's not you know the odds are beyond incalculable. I tried to console her. and she goes, no, I had this I had this dream. Well, we kind of shuffled it off, but it was certainly on our minds that she had had another dream. Now ironically, not even ironically, just miraculously, you know Carrie did die on the way down, mm-hmm. they were on descent into Los Angeles. So, in a way, the dream was real. And did, I mean, Carrie had, you know, she she was kept alive a few days. We don't know what condition she was in when they were keeping her alive. But, mm-hmm. you know, on that mm-hmm. airplane, she had had a stroke. I mean, her heart had stopped for quite some time, even though there were doctors there and all that. I mean, nobody knows. Technically speaking, she had died on that airplane.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So
1: she Did died. Did you
0: guys know that she was, you know, using and feeling, in in the way that she was before this? Well, I mean, because as know, you were saying, she was at the top of her game. She yeah, has well, been filming so Star Wars. She,
1: you know, she used to the word she used to use. She she would dabble, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I call it self medicating. You know, she would regulate the regular medications uh, that she was getting from her psychopharmacology people, and she would add her own little things to kind of stabilize it. The truth is she was pretty much an expert at at controlling these moods. Only she knew what it was like to be in there, and she became very adept at that. It's a slippery slope though, you know, you're playing with, you know, you're not a doctor at the same time, you're the only one living in there. Uh, I'm, you know, Carrie, Carrie, uh, as you know from the autopsy report, had drugs in her system. Uh, you know, however, they it wasn't like she was on the airplane doing drugs. This was not a drug related thing. however, the cumulative effect of taking both prescribed and non prescribed drugs for decades, you know, and she smoked on and off, and she drank coca-cola <laughs> like <laughs> like water <laughs> and you know so there's a health issue here, you know you right. <laughs> I don't know i I, I don't blame the doctors, but let's face it. The doctors gave her Percodan when she was a teenager. I was there. Right. You know, I mean, they, we grew up in the pill era. You know, they used to call it the California diet. I mean, we grew up when this these drugs were handed out, re- prolific by the doctors. Carrie, you, know, you could say that Carrie was, was certainly um, put on a path for sure.
0: When did it sort of hit you that you had lost both of these um, incredibly important people in your life within a day?
1: Honestly, I still find the whole thing surreal. Mm -hmm. I I swear, even in these interviews and even writing the book, I thought, I'll write the book and I'm going to get it all out. That's going to be my little cathartic thing. I don't care if anybody reads it. I'm going to get this all out. Uh, I thought that was like the thing. And, and then I do all the interviews and I go on tour, you know, and do the book thing. And I mm-hmm. thought, I'll get it out there. But I still find myself choking up. I, I still get into into very sensitive territory. The loss is tremendous. It's a huge vacuum. But, you know, we are people of, of faith and, and we do believe that we'll see them again. And, and at the same time, they both left us with so much stuff. I don't mean physical stuff. I mean beautiful words and beautiful art and beautiful <laughs> acting and music and all of this amazing stuff. If you look at the cumulative contribution that the two of them have made as a mother-daughter, it's pretty astounding.
0: Hmm. There, there's something about the humor in your family, too, about, for example, her, her urn, which was shaped as yeah. a Prozac tablet.
1: <laughs> well, which I mean, is- look, the story of the urn is actually Somewhat interesting. The urn was actually something Carrie had bought at an antique store in our twenties. And it was one of her prized possessions. It was about a 18-inch long porcelain Prozac pill. And it was a display piece, you know, from a pharmaceutical company. And she just thought it was the funniest thing ever. And she had slept it around from house to house, and it was always on a prominent place in her house. And So when she died, Billy and I, my niece, we were out trying to figure out what are we gonna put Carrie in? And we looked at all these different things and I mean, we just kept saying, oh, there's no way she would hate that. Oh, no, 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 and you know, there was some salesperson trying to sell us on stuff about, oh, this is very lovely. And we're like, oh, you don't understand who we're talking about here. Lovely is not where Carrie's gonna wanna be. You know, Debbie's a piece of cake, you know, but but Carrie, no way. Uh, That can't be. And we gave up and we went home. We're standing in the kitchen at Carrie's house and, and, and I'm looking and I'm talking to Billy and I'm looking and I, 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 in the background in the other room, I see that pill sitting on top of this cabinet and I thought I have it. Mm -hmm. And everybody (laughs) went, you have what? I, I, I have it. This is it. And I go and bring that back and everyone, Oh my God, that's perfect.
0: I mean, that's, that's just a, beautiful and funny and and it just seems, you know, from the outside without just the perfect send-off for Carrie. I think she would have loved that.
1: I know she would have, and I can also tell you that we had no idea when we bought that Prozac pill that this is where it would end up.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um and and of course there, you know, memorials and funeral it was just so much love, so many people almost like back in the Green Day, um, Greenway House times with just so much beauty. I mean, that must have been something that was a bit healing for you as well.
1: Yeah, I knew I had to do that, by the way. My mother in her uh, handwritten instructions to me originally had said, I don't want any big funeral party events of any type. She was very specific. But I also knew that she didn't know that Carrie was going to go first. And I also knew that she didn't think it was going to be together. And I knew that if it was about Carrie, she'd want to have one hell of a party. So uh, I just took it upon myself to ignore her instructions and to put on uh, one hell of a show and a party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, that's what we did. And I, I approached it like that. I knew that's what she would want. Uh, Carrie loved parties too. And, and the two of them, you know, would have loved a party. And of course, a lot of great friends came and said beautiful things. But at the same time, we had some remarkable entertainment that was very customized you know to them and for them and the music was just unbelievable there were a lot of tears but there was a lot of laughs as well it was it was a good send off and i i had to do it for me if nobody else yeah. but i knew i was doing it for the fans it was that extended family that needed to be that needed to go through all of that we all needed to go through it so we could feel like it was it could be put to rest. It was and a that's bit of,
0: what your mother would have loved that you thought of that extended family.
1: Oh, for sure. I know. and it, it, it's in my DNA at this point. I mean, right. there's no way around it.
0: You have a beautiful, beautiful thank you at the end of the book, um which, really made me cry to, to Carrie's daughter, your niece, Billy, um, where you basically say that, you know, you got to keep Carrie a few extra years, probably because of, because of Billy. Um, her life has certainly been in the limelight and of all three of you and of, of her grandmother and her mother and fame and all things that happened. What do you think is important that she know going forward into this famous life that she has? She's always you know, famous I, in her own right now that she has an acting career, but...
1: Well, and, you know, she didn't know she wanted that and, until more recently, and, and, you know, I she's extremely talented, and she's a lot... I think, actually, and this is just my opinion, she's a lot more like my mother than she is my sister mm-hmm. uh, in many ways. Uh, you know, she's a remarkable girl. She's been through so much, and she's handled it so beautifully. Uh, and, you know, I, I just cannot imagine what it would be like to be half my age in dealing with this
0: finally it was just uh, revealed I think it was a week ago or two weeks ago that JJ um, Abrams actually said in a statement that Carrie will be in the next um, Star Wars movie um, uh, how do you feel about that was it happy news well, or
1: oh no we're thrilled and you know oh, yeah you you know that I was a year and a half ago, I was clamoring about this, you know, and uh, there's some stories that were actually written where I had been talking about this a year and a half ago. And, and, uh, I had suggested that, you know, that people look, well, we could look at CG. We could, we could look at, uh, you know, a lot of different things, including the the unused footage and all that. I, I did it on an on-camera thing where I talked about, well, Disney, you know, rejected that and said that, you know, he's out of his mind and I don't know what he's talking about. And, you know, as it turns out, uh, b- because of JJ Abrams going through all the footage, you know, he really, and they, and they've re-engineered the entire script to go with that footage. You know, it turns out to be, uh, not only feasible, but something that I think is going to be really magical to have Carrie starring in the next film. She's going to be in the movie more than Mark Hamill. And, and it's really, yeah. And it's, Exactly. And, and it's kind of, we, we love it. I mean, as her, I can speak for myself, you know, as, as her brother, I just see her, the, that she and Princess Leia are inseparable. I see that, that her story is such an important part of the story. And, 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 and I think that it's, you know, clearly a great thing to have her play this out all the way. Yeah. And, I mean, uh,
0: that character, she could never, ever, ever be recast. That's for sure.
1: Oh, no. I mean, there's only one carry. I mean, it's no. it's impossible. And and I and I I know they realize that. But, you know, they were probably just looking at how do we just move around this whole thing. And, and uh, I think the fans were very outspoken as well. You know, and we're like, wow, I mean, you know, we have to have this. This is so important. What do you well, how can it be done? But, uh, you know, the wonderful thing is, is that they, you know, Disney and and JJ, you know, they they figured it out. You know, I mean, it really had nothing to do with us in the sense that, I mean, other than us saying we love the idea. Okay, right, so we're right. supporting but well that's good, but you know, tech technically speaking, you know, they don't need our permission. Uh I mean it's great when you can get it, but you know, it's kinda like <laughs> you know, they they're they're uh clearly quite capable. I, I think it's gonna be amazing what they're gonna do. I, I obviously know a little bit more than I can say, <laughs> but I what I know I can tell you that it's it's gonna be amazing and it's gonna be a beautiful tribute to Carrie and to the, the fans, and to the Star Wars legacy. It, it is exactly the right thing to do, and I'm, I'm loving it.
0: Well, Mr. Fisher, thank you for your beautiful tribute to um, your mother and your sister, and, and I hope that everyone will read your book, uh, My Girls, because it's really great, and I also, um, the documentary is incredibly poignant as well. And thank you for taking your time with me. I was really It was really lovely.
1: Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate someone who's done their homework and does a great interview, and you've done a great job. It's nice to talk to someone who knows what's going on.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much again. Thank you so much, and I hope you and for staying up at this late hour.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, we're night owls.
0: (laughs) All right. right.
1: Bye. Take. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you so much to Todd Fisher. His book is called My Girls, A Lifetime with Carrie and Debbie. And you can watch Bright Lights on HBO. And thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Pop Culture Confidential, and Twitter at Culture. Plus, if you can, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or SoundCloud. That really helps us out. This show was edited by Katrin Lundell. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thanks for listening.
1: You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories,